You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open the scriptures together. This morning we turn to the book of Judges, chapter 13, which is our scripture reading as well as our text this morning. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for forty years. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was sterile and remained childless. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are sterile and childless, but you are going to conceive and have a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink, and that you do not eat anything unclean, because you will conceive and give birth to a son. No razor may be used on his head, because the boy is to be a Nazarite set apart to God from birth. And he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman went to her husband and told him, A man of God came to me. He looked like an angel of God, very awesome. I didn't ask him where he came from, and he didn't tell me his name, but he said to me, You will conceive and give birth to a son. Now then, drink no wine or other fermented drink, and do not eat anything unclean, because the boy will be a Nazarite of God from birth until the day of his death. And Manoah prayed to the Lord, O Lord, I beg you, let the man of God you send to us come again to teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be born. God heard Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman while she was out in the field, but her husband Manoah was not with her. The woman hurried to tell her husband, he's here, the man who appeared to me the other day. Manoah got up and followed his wife. When he came to the man, he said, Are you the one who talked to my wife? I am, he said. So Manoah asked him, When your words are fulfilled, what is to be the rule for the boy's life and work? The angel of the Lord answered, Your wife must do all that I have told her. She must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, or drink any wine or other fermented drink, nor eat anything unclean. She must do everything I have commanded her. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, We would like you to stay until we prepare a young goat for you. The angel of the Lord replied, Even though you detain me, I will not eat any of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, offer it to the Lord. Manoah did not realize that it was the angel of the Lord. Then Manoah inquired of the angel of the Lord, What is your name so that we may honor you when your word comes true? He replied, Why do you ask my name? It is beyond understanding. Then Manoah took a young goat together with the grain offering and sacrificed it on a rock to the Lord. And the Lord did an amazing thing while Manoah and his wife watched. As the flame blazed up from the altar toward heaven, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame. Seeing this, Manoah and his wife fell with their faces to the ground. 
And the angel of the Lord did not show himself again to Manoah and his wife. Manoah realized that it was the angel of the Lord. We are doomed to die, he said to his wife. We have seen God. But his wife answered, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and grain offering from our hands, nor shown us all these things, or now told us this. The woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he was in Manadan between Zorah and Eshtaoh. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, as I was walking through a grocery store last week in Beijing, Rudolph, the red-nosed reindeer in English, was playing over and over and over again on the store's sound system. And as I heard it, I was reminded once again of the time that is approaching. At the same time, the television news has been broadcasting about terrorist attacks in Mumbai, about more Canadian soldiers killed in Afghanistan, about economic meltdown around the world, as well as about constitutional crisis in Ottawa. And through it all, you and I are being reminded that we need a lot more than Rudolph and even a thousand reindeers. What we really need is a savior, a real savior. What we need is someone who will get us out of the mess that we are in, in this world. Yes, and that, beloved, naturally brings us this morning to Advent. Advent is that time of year, perhaps more than any other, when we turn our hearts and our thoughts to the coming, into the world of our great and wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. It is that season on which we reflect how God the Father prepared the way for the birth of His Son, who more than anyone else is the great mess remover in this world. So just how did God prepare for his particular coming? You can say, beloved, that he did so over a long period of time. Everything that happened before Christ was born is really, in one way or another, preparation time. And for that, God used thousands of years The entire Old Testament is really Advent. And in addition to a lot of time, there is also a lot of events. Creation, fall, flood, Abraham, the patriarchs, Egypt, wilderness, wanderings, trials, and temptations. Indeed, so much happens before he comes and is tied into his coming. The history of Advent is rich with innumerable incidents and all manner of happenings. Yes, and it is also, beloved, rich with people and personalities. As God marches through history toward the birth of His Son, 
He uses a host of diverse characters. The rich and the poor. The young and the old. The weak and the powerful. The rough and the refined. The holy. And even the profane. And some of them, you know, stand out. They stand out because they act as pointers, as indicators of what either the Savior will be like or what the coming Savior will do. You might say, beloved, that before God sends the great Savior, He sends us a lot of mini-Saviors. It's His way of keeping His people alert and on their toes, and reminding them of just who it is who's really coming. Well, now, among those many saviors, there are some real characters. I might even add some weird characters as well. And one of them is found in our text. Judges 13 introduces us to Samson. And some would call him the Savior on steroids. And so today we put the Advent spotlight on him and what God intends to do through him. I preached to you on the following theme, Advent tidings, the strange birth announcement of a new Savior. And we're going to see this announcement describes a miraculous birth, a fervent plea, an amazing offering. Now, beloved, it has to be said right up front that Samson is not the only odd mini-Savior in the Bible, much less in the book of Judges. As a matter of fact, there are quite a few of them. There is Ehud, who buries his sword in the fat of King Eglon. There is Barak, the reluctant judge, as well as Deborah, the no-nonsense lady judge. There is Gideon, the fleecy judge, and there is Jephthah, the over-quick-to-respond judge. And then there's Samson. Only the way that Samson comes on the scene, I want to remind you, is different. All of the other judges and many saviors mentioned suddenly appear as full-grown people. Well, not here in Judges 13. For what God does here is not just send a judge, but he, as it were, grows a judge. Samson is the last and the thirteenth judge, and he's the only one whom God grows from scratch. He's the only one who God grooms from birth, even, you can say, before birth. So just how does God do this? Well, he does it as he does so many other things, suddenly and unexpectedly. One day God sends his special angel called the angel of the Lord to a man in the town of Zorah. His name is Manoah, which means resting place or condition of rest. 
And so then you are reminded as well from what our local retirement home gets his name, Manoa Manor. The place, supposedly, of rest. And as for this Manoah, he lives in Zorah, a town first given to Judah, but later on given to the tribe of Dan. And he's also a Danite. And that's about as much as we learn about him. But then there is also his wife. And actually notice her name is not given. We can only call her the wife of Manoah or Mrs. Manoah. But if, you know, anonymity is the first thing that we learn about her, there's also a second thing right away that comes to the fore that's rather sad and tragic about Mrs. Manoah. You find it in the words, she was sterile and remained childless. Mr. and Mrs. Manoah have no children, and humanly speaking, it would appear that they never will have any children. And what a burden That must have been for them to be childless in Israel at that time and in such a culture was no easy thing. And yet notice nothing is said about this burden. No painful complaints are heard about their sad condition. No special pleas are mentioned asking God to fix the problem. In a way it appears as if Mr. and Mrs. Manoah have gotten used to it. They've accepted their childless lot in life. But then one day, Mrs. Manoah gets a visitor, a very exalted visitor. Verse 3 says that the angel of the Lord appeared to her. And notice, he appears to her, not to him, not to them, but to her only. And what does he say? You are sterile and childless, but you are going to conceive and have a son. Now, what is this? When you first hear that, doesn't it come across as rather direct and offensive? The angel doesn't bother for one to introduce himself. Neither does he tread carefully and speak sensitively to her about her condition. No, it's all rather abrupt and in your face. You are sterile and childless. It makes one wonder whether or not they teach manners in heaven. But you know, with the first angelic words border on rudeness. The second set of angelic words are full of the miraculous. You are going to conceive and have a son. Now we do not know Mrs. Manoa's age. Was she young? Was she old? Was she still in her childbearing years or past them? None of that is mentioned probably because none of it matters. What matters here is she's going to conceive and she's going to have a child. She who can have no children will receive a child. What a gift. What a wonder. And with those few words, you can say the angel instantly propels this particular lady into very special company. 
Perhaps without her even knowing it, she joins the ranks of women like Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Hannah before her. All were barren. All were visited by God. All received children by divine intervention. And yet there is something that sets her apart. It's this no-name business. Why is her name not mentioned? Why does God not reveal it? Why, in her case, is obscurity added to sterility? Only God knows. But at the same time, God shows us something here about the way that he works among his people. You know, he's always and he's ever the God of surprises. Just, you know, when you think you know what God is going to do and how he will do it, he catches you off guard again. And secondly, he shows us that he always works in the most sovereign manner. While we might like to know her name, We really do not need to know her name. In a sense, her name doesn't matter. What matters is God and what he will do for her and what he will do for his people Israel through her and through her son. And all the rest is window dressing. So just what will God do for her? God will give her a son, yes. But notice, this is not going to be any ordinary son. And we know this because, first of all, the angel gives special instructions to Mrs. Manoah herself. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink, that you do not do anything unclean, because you will conceive and give birth to a son. In other words, she's to make sure that she avoids wine, and liquor, and that she remains clean. And notice, three times in this one chapter, in the verses 5, 7, and 14, these instructions are repeated. You can say, Mrs. Manoba receives a very clear and special charger. But in the second place, the angel gives instructions also about her son and about how he's to be raised. No razor may be used on his head because the boy is to be a Nazarite set apart to God from birth. And notice again, twice these instructions are repeated in the verses 5 and 7. So what does it mean? It means more than anything else that God expects Samson to be and to become someone special. He's never supposed to become your ordinary average Israelite. He's always to be seen as a judge, Nazarite, as a very special savior and redeemer sent from God Almighty. 
For him, it's going to be a life with no wine, no beer, no bars, no barber, no hairdresser, no brush cut, no autopsies, no funeral parlor work, no mortuary. He'll be a Nazarite. And he'll indeed, he can even say that Samson is going to be in some ways a super Nazarite. Normally a Nazarite takes a voluntary vow. But his vow is going to be compulsory. Normally a Nazarite takes a temporary vow, but his vow is going to be permanent all through his life. And normally the mother is not involved in this way. But she's going to have to practice abstinence and kosher. Obviously then, beloved, this judge, this last judge, is going to be a very special judge. What he really is, if you want to know, what he really is, is a case of divine shock therapy for a dead people. Realize that here in Judges 13, Israel is all but dead. And far gone. You know, earlier in this book, you find a certain pattern. And the pattern is this. Israel is oppressed. Israel calls on the Lord. And the Lord delivers Israel. But look at verse 1 of chapter 13. There's oppression. For 40 long years, there is oppression. And you thought those years of World War II were long? Ten times longer. But notice Israel doesn't cry out to God. They've gotten used to their misery. They somehow succumb to it all. The fight is out of them. And the praying is out of them as well. This is a dead People. And do not forget as well, Mrs. Manoah is in a sense a dead woman too. That's why the text says she's sterile in addition to being childless. But then, beloved, in that world of death, there comes suddenly the living God. And he sees the sad condition of his people and he springs into action again, even without the asking. And he shows them that he lives, that his faithfulness lives, that his promises live, that his almighty power lives. He promises a new Savior. Samson is coming. Coming to do what? The answer is in verse 5. He will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Samson, the judge, Nazarite, mini-savior is coming. Coming to deliver God's people. A special man for a special piece of work. 
And beloved, when you think of all of that, what is that but a pointer? Isn't that a pointer to an even more special man, Jesus Christ? And, and isn't that also a pointer to an even greater work, his work of saving his people? You see, when the God-man comes, he will do more than simply deal with the misery caused by a people called the Philistines. He will deal with the root and the cause of all misery, which is sin. His person will be greater and his work will be greater. Now that, beloved, was quite the visit to have on a Monday or Tuesday morning, if it happened then. Little wonder that the first thing that Mrs. Manoa did was run and tell her husband. She told him about the angel and she told him the impression that he had made on her. She said, he's awesome. And she told him about the message. And what did Mr. Manoa say? Woman? Are you mad? Woman, have you been drinking? Woman, snap out of it. Now, he didn't react in any of those ways. Instead, the text says, he prayed. Oh, Lord, I beg you, let the man of God you sent us come again to teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be born. What did the Lord do? Verse 9 tells the story. God heard Manoah, and the angel of the Lord came again. In other words, God listened to his plea. God heard Manoah's prayer. And, and isn't that, isn't that fantastic? And indeed, do we still realize just how fantastic this is? I suspect that here is another one of those great gifts and those great blessings that we so easily take for granted. Of course, God hears us. Of course he answers us. What else is new in the kingdom of God? Do you see how we so easily turn the abnormal into the normal? For it really is a wonder that God listens to the likes of a Manoah. He's just an ordinary run-of-the-mill Israelite he belongs to a wayward, disobedient covenant people. And besides, he already has the message. Why does he bother to ask God to repeat it? Beloved, if there are times when you wonder about the effectiveness of your prayers, about whether or not they're being heard, or about whether or not God is still listening. Take heart. If Manoah can get a hearing, you will get a hearing. 
If God hears him, God hears you. If he gets an answer, you will get an answer. God is still inviting us, call on me and I will answer you. You can be certain I will hear you. And I'll respond to you. The only uncertainty in this life is just how precisely he's going to respond to you. And even about that uncertainty, you surely know by now that his answer was always wrapped in love and compassion. So the angel comes again. The angel confirms that Mrs. Manoa was not dreaming in technicolor. And in response to Manoa's questions, he simply repeats what he's already told her. Notice nothing less, nothing more. Was Manoa disappointed? I suspect that he was. He probably figured, I'm a man, and surely the angel will tell me more than he ever told to a woman. Nothing doing. The message is clear. They'll receive a son from God. And this is how they're to raise him. Just follow the instructions. I gave them three times to your wife. I gave them two times about your son. Just follow the instructions. Just be faithful. That's what the angel says to them. And you know, that's really all that God is saying to us today as well. He doesn't expect all kinds of extraordinary stuff from us. The Christian faith is not about jumping through a thousand difficult contorted hoops. It's not about acting like supermen and superwomen. It's not about spiritual and moral superiority. No, first and foremost, it's about faithfulness. About simply embracing and appropriating the promises of God. And of living out of them, humbly, thankfully, obediently, every day. And so Manoah gets the message. But that's not the end of the story. For Manoah wants to express his thanks by offering up the young goat. The angel says, thanks, but no thanks. He doesn't want a burnt offering for himself. He tells Manoah to offer it to the Lord. But notice that's not quite good enough for Manoah. He wants more. He he wants to know the angel's name. Why? Well, it may have something to do with control. In the ancient world, the common view was that if you knew someone's name, you knew something about their character And you could even control them. But notice, the angel wants none of that. He replies that his name is beyond understanding. Literally, it's wonderful, incomprehensible. In other words, there's just no way that Manoah or any of us will ever get to know him completely or control him 
conveniently to do our bidding. The God of the covenant is, as the Scots used to say, beyond our ken. We can know him through his word and through his spirit, but we shall never know him fully, completely, absolutely, exhaustively. He's ever the potter. And whether you like it or not, we're always going to be the clay. Maybe one day we're going to be glorified clay, but we'll still be clay. And you know, to illustrate that, a most amazing thing happens. For as the goat and the grain are offered in sacrifice on a nearby rock, and as Manoah and his wife watch, the flame blazed up from the altar toward heaven. The angel ascended in the flame. In the fire. He goes up and up. And notice when Mr. and Mrs. Manoah see that, they instantly fall with their faces to the ground. And why do they react in that way? Well, because they know now they have seen God. Think about it. Who went before Israel all those years in the desert? Was it not the Lord who went before them in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night? Who was in the burning bush that spoke to Moses? The Lord God is in the fire. And when Manoah sees it, he thinks, game over. We're doomed to die. Of course, when we hear that reaction, we tend to think, ah, that's kind of a childish reaction. And we might even comment, see, he's just a primitive Old Testament believer and He only sees God in negative superstitious terms. What he needs is a healthy dose of New Testament theology. But is Manoah's reaction so far off target? Is it still not a fearsome thing to come into the presence of the Lord? Is it not a fearsome thing to come into the presence of the Lord if you're not clothed in the blood, as it were, of Jesus Christ? Does the New Testament letter to the Hebrews not say that our God is even today a consuming fire? Fear, respect, awe, wonder, even trembling are not out of place. Not even for us. But you know, so is the other side of the picture. You might say, as you look at our text, Manoah seems to know very well the fear of God. But notice, Mrs. Manoah knows something about the mercy of God. If, she says, if the Lord had meant to kill us, 
He would not have accepted a burnt offering and grain offering from our hands, nor shown us these things, nor told us of this. You see how fear and mercy, respect and love, awe and assurance, they're all appropriate and necessary Responses when it comes to God. The best approach to Him is still one of balance. Or one can say that it's one of balance mixed with a healthy and huge dose of faith. For notice the text ends with the words, the woman gave birth to a son and named him Samson. And furthermore, it tells us that he grew and the Lord blessed him and the spirit of the Lord began to stir in him. And indeed, as we read those verses, indeed, as we read this entire chapter in this obscure book of Judges, do the bells of Advent not begin ringing in our ears and in our hearts? Here a whole chapter is devoted to the coming of a Savior for Israel. Where else is there a whole chapter devoted to the birth and coming of a Savior? But in Luke 2. And here an angel comes with special news about a special birth. Isn't that what we hear as well in those opening chapters of the New Testament? Here the coming of a special child is described. And later on we hear about an even more special child. Here a deliverer is promised to Israel. But he's but a foretaste of a much greater and glorious deliverer who comes in the fullness of time. You see, the parallels between Samson and the Lord Jesus are everywhere. And they're even in their name. Samson. Samson means son. S-U-N. The sun that shines every day thanks to God's providence. But you know, Malachi says about Jesus Christ who is coming, he's the son of righteousness with healing in his wings. So you see how Samson, the mini-savior, points us ever so clearly to Jesus Christ, the great and the perfect Savior. And also during this festive season, it is his first coming that we remember. But it's his second coming that we anticipate. We're living between the Advents And I would say, as we live between the comings of Jesus Christ, let us be full of good confidence and great hope. Terrorist attacks will continue to come and go. Unfortunately, soldiers, even Canadian soldiers, will continue to die. 
Economies will continue to rise and fall. Political developments in Ottawa and elsewhere will keep on waxing and waning. But remember, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will always be the Lord of the Advent. He will forever be our rock in turbulent times. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.